From Michigan Radio, this is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Today, a chaotic start to former Detroit Police Chief James Craig's campaign for governor. James Craig has got to go! Hey, hey! Ho, ho! James Craig it's not just about James Craig, right? It is about this furious political moment that we find ourselves in. Then, artists transform a Detroit house into an exploration of modern feminism. Some people are going to be there and feel really uncomfortable. Some people are going to be there and feel really healed or really comforted. And two families talk about their complicated feelings about going back to school amid the ongoing pandemic. She's not even asking if, but just when are these outbreaks going to start happening in Brighton. The story's coming right up today on Stateside. Welcome to Stateside. I'm April Bear. Today, Michigan families send their kids back to school. I just really saw a lot of smiling faces today. Smiling faces on the teachers. The students seem to be excited. I think a lot of students just really want to get out of the house. But first... Can you hear this? No, not the air horn, not the chanting or the screaming. Listen closer. Still can't hear? That was former Detroit Police Chief James Craig announcing his run for governor as a Republican. Surrounded by protesters on Detroit's Belle Isle, Craig leans into the microphones at the podium, pulls them close to his mouth, and shouts, although you can't hear him, I am running for governor of Michigan. For months, we've been waiting for this announcement as Craig made only a thinly veiled attempt to conceal his plans to challenge Governor Gretchen Whitmer for statewide office. This may not have been the announcement he planned or hoped for, but it may actually work out in his favor. More on that in just a minute. But for now, Michigan Radio's Zoe Clark joins us. She was in person for the announcement and the ensuing chaos. Zoe, hi. Hi, April. We'll get to the merits and the substance of James Craig's campaign in just a second. But I got to ask you about the scene today. Why were the protesters there? Yeah, they were there because James Craig uh, was the police chief of Detroit uh, during, uh, of course, the social justice uh, protests uh, last year. They do not like how James Craig handled that. And Detroit will breathe. These protesters came out in force to Belle Isle, where this morning at 10 a.m., James Craig, as you heard, was trying to announce for governor uh, and really was unable to, at least in that moment. So the anti-Craig protesters knew that this was happening today. They knew where to be and they showed up early in force. Were there, James... Go ahead. I was just going to say, if you can picture Belle Isle, indeed, he was supposed to be at Sunset point across uh, the road, you could see the protesters gathering outside of the fountain in, in about half an hour around 930. There was, you know, people were kind of beginning to say, we think, you know, the protesters are going to try to interrupt. Um, and they basically walked uh, with horns, as you heard, across the street. Um, and and basically kind of took over the area, right? I mean, Craig's podium was all set up, right? I mean, the media was there. So you sort of had this stage for the protesters. Meanwhile, Craig was um, in an awaiting car uh, and, and, you know, basically waited uh, quite some time as the protesters shouted, as you can hear, before he decided to walk to the podium himself. 
Were there any James Craig supporters there, too? There were. Uh, they were outnumbered, though, by the protesters there. Uh, I would say there was about equal number of uh, James Craig staffers who were there, right? Campaign manager, press secretary, some funders. Um, and then I would say there were, you know, the same amount or so of supporters, at least at, at the Bell Isle uh, event, uh, which then got moved about 90 minutes later uh, to a different location where the protesters were not able to get to. I want to ask you what, what James Craig had to say in the more quiet environment, but this this incredible Chaos. It, it looks like a candidate who has no control and really hadn't planned a lot for this announcement. But at the same time, it feels like this protest disruption may actually work in his favor. Can you explain how that might work? So, yes. Uh, first, it did feel confounding, right, that here you are in the middle of a public park. <laughs> we know we are in furious political times. Um, And, you know, the place where he was making the announcement, I mean, folks knew about where this place was going to be, right? Um, Words started to trickle after the protesters um, got in front of the podium, were using these bullhorns, were shouting, and let's also say, um, you know, using words not fit for me to repeat on the radio this afternoon. And, you know, for some folks in the crowd, supporters basically were saying, look, you know, look at this lawlessness and folks on the far left. Um, You know, one person I spoke to basically said, you know, how can you have a, you know, small D democratic debate if you're even unwilling to hear, you know, the other side? And so it is going to be interesting to see how uh, his uh, campaign decides to use some of this footage of him getting drowned out of him basically having to have security protection around him as he was walking back from the podium um, versus the Detroit will breathe protesters who I think basically feel sort of like, you know, mission accomplished. Basically, they drowned him out from making this announcement, at least at the time and place where he was originally planning on doing it. At the same time, it seems like a clip that was made for Republican fundraising to some extent. And this goes back right to this sort of idea of lawlessness, right? And Chief James Craig and, you know, when he eventually was able to make the announcement later on, which we'll talk about, a lot of that stump speech was about law and order. Okay, so plan B, the Craig campaign relocates uh, in a different location after a police under a police escort and he makes a statement. What did James Craig say about his campaign? Yeah. So about an hour and a half later after folks sort of waiting around and then this kind of word of there's this new address and it really it was so odd. It was like you could see this contingency of cars, you know, all following each other only, you know, two miles or so away, maybe even less than that. Uh, it was on a rooftop overlooking uh, Detroit, uh, Detroit River and Windsor. Um, and he spoke. It was windy. At one point, the the sign that said James Craig on the podium fell down, which just sort of also felt indicative of sort of the entire day. Two folks were having to hold the flags that were next to him again because of the wind. Um, and really what he did is he gave a stump speech. Yes, I am a political outsider, but I am a proven leader who refuses to be boxed in by the color of my skin or partisan affiliation. Thank you. 
It was similar to a speech that he gave in Jackson a month or two ago. Um, you know, again, tough on crime, um, uh, really talking about, you know, Whitmer in his mind, her failed policies when it came to COVID um, and schools. Um, and, you know, really kind of, a, I would say, a, you know, red meat speech uh, for the GOP. Yeah. So James Craig's run for governor has been anticipated for months now, basically since he retired uh, from the force earlier this year. What can you tell us about why he's seeking statewide office? It's a good question. <laughs> right now, it seems, and he was asked today, you know, uh, you know, trying to talk about his policies. And instead, what it seemed like he was most concentrated about was, um, you know, w- Governor Whitmer's handling of COVID, the economy. You know, he also kind of made a joke about the roads, you know, those damn roads not getting fixed. Um, but again, he seemed to really key in on the law and order message um, that the state and the nation are sort of full of lawlessness um, and that how he, as police chief, was able to, you know, have more control in a city like Detroit during um, the social justice protests and the Black Lives Matter protests, um, you know, last year, which, again, was a very interesting dynamic to hear him talking about that 90 minutes after you know, this Detroit Will Breathe group um, drowned him out because of, of their concerns and their real anger towards his policing in Detroit. James Craig is the biggest name on the Republican side in the governor's race so far, but there are some other candidates running within the GOP who are expected to pull support from some pretty strong anti-establishment folks, the, the Trump base, if you will. Zoe, what do we know about the state party's support of James Craig at this point? Yeah, this is what's so interesting, right, is right now, you know, some folks are calling him the front runner. He does have some establishment support. Um, A certain John Engler, who you might remember was governor, uh, has basically endorsed his campaign uh, because he's uh, helping with the fundraising and overseeing the fundraising for his campaign. Um, Look, you know, Ron Weiser, the chair of the Republican Party, is saying there's going to be a primary. There's going to be a lot of candidates. We're nearly, you know, near a baker's dozen of folks. I think it's going to be interesting to see, you know, James Craig is trying to sort of, I think, straddle the fence between establishment Republican, but also trying to get the Trump base. Um, But you have folks like Tudor Dixon, you have folks like Garrett Saldano, um, right, who are basically saying, you know, we are not the establishment. I mean, coming out this week and saying we're not going to the Mackinac Policy Conference, sort of the establishment's establishment, you know, business conference that's always sort of catered towards, um, you know, the business class here in Michigan. And so, I mean, you know, today was fascinating. It was interesting. um, But watching how Republicans coalesce less around one of these 10, 11 candidates uh, before August um, is going to be fascinating because in the end, you know, this this person, whoever wins to run against Gretchen Whitmer could get, you know, in theory, 12 percent of the Republican vote or 26 percent of the Republican vote. Right. Depending on how many candidates are in the race come August. And then how do you go and parlay that that small of support in August into a general election. It's going to be a fascinating year. Michigan Radio's Zoe Clark. Zoe, thank you. Thanks, April. In other stories that we're following, 
A group of Detroit artists are creating new work inspired by a storied contemporary art project from the 1970s, a project that aimed to write women into the picture. It's very immersive. You can quite literally walk inside, sit down in a beanbag, a giant beanbag. We have been referring to it lovingly as the placenta beanbag. <laughs> we'll meet one of the artists for the new Woman House Detroit in just a moment. Stay with us. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. Back in 1971, a couple of contemporary artists, not inclined to keep quiet, created an installation to draw attention to the fact that women were forcibly kept out of the mainstream in their field. With crates and whatever materials they could lay hands on, they built a six-room structure called Woman House. It was comprised of a parlor, a nursery, a kitchen, a harem, and other rooms dedicated to the archetypes that women found themselves shoehorned into, then and now. A group of Detroit artists have created a new work taking the spirit of Woman House and reinterpreting it for this moment in 2021. Woman House Detroit opens this weekend, and today we're talking with Jessica DeMuro Graves. She's an interdisciplinary and multimedia artist who splits her time between Detroit and Chicago. Her contribution is called The Womb Room. And Laura Earle is the co-curator of Woman House Detroit, alongside Detroit photographer, curator, and gallerist Asia Hamilton. Laura, Jessica, welcome to Stateside. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you. I'm, I'm really excited to talk to you. Laura, let's start out with the backstory. What was the premise of the original Woman House launched almost 50 years ago? Yes. So 50 years ago, the art world was even more heavily dominated by white male artists than it is today. And at that point in time, there were two women artists in particular who wanted to create an educational program for women artists at the college level, and that was Judy Chicago and Miriam Shapiro. And they launched the feminist art program at CalArts or California Institute of the Arts in 1972 with the project Woman House. And in that project, they took over a mansion in LA and the artists who were enrolled in their class transformed it into a whole house art installation. And in doing so, they were able to learn the kinds of skills that they needed to build sculptures and other forms of art media that at that point in time were not available to them readily at the college level. What appealed about bringing this contemporary art classic into a more contemporary contemporary setting? When I was in graduate school, there was a feminist arts seminar that I was involved in. And while we were learning about Woman House, we just kept asking ourselves, I wonder what women would make work about today. Like what has changed and what is different now? And as we kept asking that question week after week, finally, I said, you know, let's just find out. So in 2018, we took over a 3000 square foot house in Manchester, Michigan, and we worked collaboratively to transform that space into a conversation about what it was like to be female today and a response kind of across the decades to those first artists. And that was called Dear Woman House. And then now, a few years later, especially when the climate has changed so much as far as what's happening for women in America today, we decided it was a great time to do this project again, change the geography a little bit so that now we're looking at what's it like in an urban space at this moment in time, in the middle of a pandemic, when women's rights are under fire by legislation in Texas. Right. Laura, could you describe the space before we talk about what Jessica is filling it with? 
Sure. So the house is on the northwest side of Detroit. It is where uh, my co-curator, Asia Hamilton, grew up. It's probably a, I want to say probably a 1,200 square foot house, a typical Detroit neighborhood house. And it's two stories. And we've got about eight different spaces that are being transformed by the artists. Jessica, when you got involved in this, did you have a piece of concept in mind right away? Um, well, when I was invited to be a part of it, my first instinct was, oh, I have to be a part of this for a number of reasons. I prioritize a lot of my work around women's issues and the safety of those things. Uh, but in addition to that, Judy Chicago has always been a big inspiration to me and knowing the legacy of Woman House, it was kind of a, um, a little bit of a career dream to be involved in something like this. And in addition, I had just recently found out that I was pregnant at the time and decided that I really wanted to create this, just turn this whole space into a womb. And I imagine that the pregnancy had some influence on that, but also just as a, like a, a healing space, we don't often get the opportunity to return to the womb if ever. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so the, all these things started to formulate in my head of what I could do and how I could create that. And in one of our first meetings, I had said to Laura and a lot of the women that were there at the first meeting that I had sparked this idea of creating, turning or transforming, I should say, an entire room in the house into an immersive womb experience. And Laura immediately was like, oh, yes, let's do this. <laughs> About halfway through the process of planning the womb space um, or the womb room, um, I had a, a really devastating miscarriage. And so at one point for a split second, I thought, I don't think I can do this project. It might be too much. And then after maybe a few deep breaths, I had realized that my feelings about why I wanted to create the womb space didn't change because of that, maybe perhaps rather enhanced because of that experience and the necessity to have that around, especially with all of the things that a womb can entail and create. Can you describe what people will see when they enter the space? Yeah, uh, it would be, Laura and I refer to it an artistic interpretation of a womb. It's very immersive. You can quite literally walk inside, sit down in a beanbag, a giant beanbag. We have been referring to it lovingly as the placenta beanbag. <laughs> um, you can sit in there. There will be audio soundscapes happening as well and vignettes. So it will quite literally feel like you are inside a womb. It will be dimly lit to kind of keep that warmth feeling going on. So I, I hate to give too much information because I really think that each person is going to have a different experience. I was thinking a lot about Jessica's installation and the experience of being in there. And as you go into the space, it takes a minute for your eyes to really adjust so you can get your bearings in this new world that she's created. And I think that experience of making the choice to stay in there as your eyes adjust, to constantly be searching for the little details to teach yourself the contours of this new space is really amazing 
as you do that and you take the time and you really slow down, uh, then you can start to see what's happening in the space around you. When you choose to actually leave, it, it's very dramatic. I, I love how she's made this space where uh, time really has to slow down because of the physiology of the viewer. Right. Jessica, I really appreciate the fact that you're open to talking about the fact that you had a miscarriage in the midst of your process for this. And you don't have to answer this if you don't want to, but the womb is a place, as you mentioned, that we think of as being the ultimate insecurity. And you went through this really awful experience, which makes plain the fact that the womb can also be a place where very awful things happen. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that comes across at all in how you ultimately visualize this installation, but was there any way that you were trying to talk about the ambiguity of of the experience of the womb? Um, outside of it being explicit inside this, in the statement about the womb itself, you know, I, I think that when you walk in there, there's going to be some ephemeral that maybe even some would say represents bleeding or shedding. So I think that there's, for me, it's both things are happening inside that space at once. It just, I think with art, a lot of times it's, we are in subconsciously or unconsciously or even consciously having dialogue as, as the audience with the piece that we are confronted with. And so different people are going to come out of that experience with different things. Some people are going to be there and feel really uncomfortable. Some people are going to be there and feel really healed or really comforted. And in a way, you know, the womb, like we were saying, is this ultimate place of creation, but it is also this place that can be of destruction. And for women who are still pre-menopause and still have uteruses, they are often experiencing this cycle of creation and destruction monthly. So this is something that's happening constantly inside women's bodies. It is this death, birth, and rebirth cycle. If you're just joining us, my guests today are Jessica DeMuro Graves, an artist who is based in both Detroit and Chicago, and co-curator Laura Earle. Jessica is one of the artists, and Laura, one of the curators working on Woman House Detroit. Laura, there are more than a dozen artists who are involved in this. What's the range of subjects that some of the artists have chose to talk about? It's interesting to me to see the range. So it's everything from making a statement about standing up for women's rights as citizens who deserve privacy protection, the same as anyone else, to concerns about the environment for future generations, to wrestling with being both the oppressed and oppressor as members of two cultural communities, to a lot of spiritual ascent and healing. There is a significant portion of the house is addressing the aftermath and continuing losses of COVID-19 and what it's like to live through a pandemic. So there's a huge range of, of work. Yeah. We're in an era in which we tend to talk about a female identity very differently 
than people used to when the original woman house came to life. Mm-hmm. How are you and the other folks working on the curatorial end, how are you trying to frame this so that a range of female-bodied people or people who identify as female have a place in the exhibition? That really happened foundationally when we first started to look at creating a platform for the artists to freely express their perspectives. We were very careful to invite people who were able to do installation types of projects, but that came from a whole variety of backgrounds. And we trusted that given this freedom for expression that they would bring to the table, what was important to them at this moment. And then the goal all along curatorially has been to help them elevate their work and amplify their voices so that they can share their perspective. Jessica, I wonder if I can turn back to you for a minute. Your piece of this, your installation, Womb Room, essentially takes up an entire space in the house. Were there any logistical challenges in this that you hadn't ever experienced before? Oh, were there ever. This was, I think this may be the most labor-intensive installation that I have done to date. It required a lot of extra hands with fabrication. I have a profound appreciation for Laura's husband, Rich, and my friend and assistant, Sarah, who came in and, and really helped take this from the ethers and put it into the physical. We definitely had tried to figure out if there were other spaces in the house in which it could go. And ultimately, both Laura and I thought that the large bedroom on the top floor was going to be the most conducive space in order to allow a full immersive experience. What did you decide to go with for materials? Well, the, the outer shell of it is a, is a wood frame structure. And then we went through and insulated and lined that structure to create a fleshy material and then lined that with red satin so that it still had a slick or wet feel on the inside, but still had the warmness of the uterus, the womb. Laura, just to explain, you and your husband, Rich, were actually helping with the build-out. Um, how, how would you rate the degree of difficulty in the process compared with other stuff you've, you've worked on? Oh, this is a brain bender. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. I mean, so we're talking about taking a rectilinear space and turning it into something completely curvilinear and doing it, you know, as efficiently as possible with the, using minimal amount of materials and everything in there is curvy. So yeah, it was definitely, uh, took some time and a lot of discussion and, but we, we ended up pushing through making, you know, first we started out with cardboard models and then we pushed into CAD and started working in wood and we're able to resolve a lot of it. And we also recognized that the finish of how it was being padded and, trimmed in textiles would really address some of the finer points of transition in the space. And Jessica and Sarah did that beautifully. Well, to me, nothing says femininity like a woman with a drill and a staple gun. So. Oh yeah. Jessica learned about pneumatic tools and she's all in. (laughs) I'm all in. (laughs) That, uh, that air compressed staple gun was fun. fun. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess in closing, I wanted to ask you both, So the overarching title of the show is The Art of Being Female in America Today. 
What was it about that question that you found yourself playing with as you were getting ready? That's a great question. So I, I really feel that a lot of the work addresses women's concept of their own identity and especially their identity as women in a society that is constantly telling them to be more perfect than is humanly possible mm. and tries to get them to conform to a certain sort of good girl, cis, normal, you know, hetero, middle-class version of femininity. Right. And the reality is, is vastly different. So I felt that it was important to create a platform where women could continue to explore this and express their own narrative instead of buying into and reflecting the narrative that has been marketed to us about who we are supposed to be. And I feel that the that is an, a conversation that is constantly evolving. And the more women from the more backgrounds we get together, the richer that conversation becomes. And that is definitely what has been taking place at Woman House Detroit and will continue to take place at Woman House Detroit as it becomes an artist residency in the future. Yeah, I would love to echo everything that Laura said, because I think that we are currently writing what modern feminism really looks like now, especially with the focus on stepping into a more inclusive narrative about that and conversation. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Woman House Detroit will feature 15 artists, including Jessica DeMuro Graves. We have been talking to her and also to co-curator Laura Earle. Laura, Jessica, thank you so much. We're looking forward to seeing you September 18th for the opening. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. Woman House Detroit is all set to open this Saturday. If you're ready to go, you can find directions on the Eventbrite page. Just a quick note to let you know that if you registered to attend our Issues in Ale event tonight about life after COVID, we're moving the event to its rain date on account of this evening's storm activity. Stay safe tonight, and we'll see you tomorrow evening at York in Ann Arbor. Next up, how two families living in different school districts, making different pandemic choices, are spending their mornings this school year. Someone in one of those public meetings will say that putting a mask on my child is child abuse. And that hurts. It hurts so much because I myself have experienced trauma as a child, not physical abuse. But it's, you know, that no, it's not. It's just not abuse. We'll be right back. This is Stateside. I'm April Bear. It's back to school season and in this era of COVID-19. What that looks like depends a lot on where you live. Our producer, Aaron Allen, and Michigan Radio's podcast producer, Rachel Ishikawa, recently spent some time with two families for the series Mornings in Michigan, talking about getting ready for the day. One family has an unvaccinated seven-year-old in a school district that is not requiring masks, and the other has a teenager who is vaccinated in a district with a mask mandate. Let's take a listen. You got on your deodorant? Yeah. You got everything you need for practice. You took your medicine. Tuesday, September 7th was Judah Shelton's first day back, in person, at school, in 543 days. 
He's 15, and he's a sophomore at Mary Grove High School, which is a part of the Detroit Public Schools Community District. It's one of the many districts in Michigan with a mask mandate. And Judah and Arlisa say getting ready for school was just like riding a bike, right back into the groove of things. Well, I began my day by getting my clothes all ironed. Got dressed, had breakfast. Uh, we do a regime of vitamins and stuff. We were doing that. We had prayer. Father God, in Jesus' name, God, we thank you. And we pray that you will protect Judah. And then we were off to school. School starts at 9 a.m. As Arlisa pulled up to Marygrove, she caught a vibe. I just really saw a lot of smiling faces today. Smiling faces on the teachers. The students seem to be excited. I think a lot of students just really want to get out of the house. I asked Judah what the situation was when he got inside. I'm not going to lie, we were pretty crowded in the building, so it wasn't really that much social distancing. But I think all of the students got tested before they came to the school. I mean, Judah says COVID-19 tests weren't mandatory, but they did offer them on campus. And everyone was required to wear a mask while indoors and wear it above, above the nose. nose. I still don't get that. Like, you can't really breathe with a, with a mask on, so... So we can all agree that wearing a mask can be annoying, but the alternative would be virtual school, which Arlisa says was not good for Judah last year. Everything a child can benefit from in the classrooms, uh, connecting with other people, hands-on, all of that is all of the things that he needs. Because uh, he didn't have that opportunity last year, and last year was his first year of high school, which is a milestone. So I was glad to see him back in the school. But Arlisa says she's still worried about Judah's safety. He plays football. Football is a contact sport. You're in close proximity to everybody, which is, I think, some of the reason why Judah decided to get vaccinated. Yeah, Arlisa left it up to Judah to decide whether he wanted to get fully vaccinated. And he said he was kind of hoping to get superpowers out of it. But mostly it was for protection against the what-ifs. What if, like, there comes a new disease, and what if we're not prepared for that? And what if the only survivors were the people with the vaccine? What are you looking forward to tomorrow, next week? I'm going to cheese-neck every single person in that building. What is this cheese-necking? Uh, slap somebody on the neck and then just run. Or you could just take a, a wad of cheese and just. <laughs> wow. Okay. Well, on that note, <laughs> pandemic or not, some of us still don't miss high school. And for good reason. For Michigan Radio, I'm Erin Allen. And I'm Rachel Ishikawa in Brighton. Here, unlike in Detroit, there are no mask requirements, which has left some caregivers asking, will my kid be the only one masked up? Caitlin Perry-Dial is one of these parents. She has two kids, neither old enough to get the vaccine. Elliot, her oldest, is seven, and he's starting second grade after a year of virtual school. Caitlin is usually the first one up in the mornings. And I make the coffee. Uh, and if it's early enough, I can enjoy a little bit of that before the chaos begins. That's kind of like my private time to, you know, have that outward anxiety before they wake up. Oh, in our school district, masks are not mandatory, and it's become quite a hot-button issue 
um, all over our county. Uh, but you know, we've we've done our best to wear our masks and and do our part in this pandemic. All right, it's time to go wake up the boys. Good morning, Elliot. Second day of school. And then once the boys are up, it is, it's basically like a shotgun to the door. Yesterday at lunch recess, which it was the first recess, and um, I was trying to lift a tree. You were trying to lift a tree? Mm-hmm. It did not happen. Yeah, I don't think it's... All right, Theo, she's on. I'm going to be... So this whole lead up to going back in person, it's been teetering on that edge of turmoil within myself and not showing that anxiety to Elliot. So I have a question, Elliot. What will you do or how do you think you'll feel if somebody picks on you for wearing a mask? First, he said he would go tell a teacher, and I then I kind of pushed him and I said, "Well, what would you do if you didn't have a teacher around? What would you say to them?" I would say stop doing it. I don't like it. Yeah. And he said that he would say, "Stop it! I don't like what you're saying." And you know, I think that that is an acceptable answer for a seven-year-old. So, Elliot. You ready for day two of school? Yeah. Yeah? How are you feeling about yesterday? Good. Yeah? You know, you it's your child. You, you know just by looking at them what they're feeling. And so when Elliot says, oh, I feel good, I but you can see that he's just kind of shrugging his shoulders and he doesn't have that light in his eyes that he always has when he does feel good. You know that he's just saying that answer to make me happy because he doesn't want me to worry. Uh, let's yeah. wait for the bus. bus. I'm proud of Elliot because I know that this has been really hard for him. That he did virtual school with a smile on his face. But I'm also proud of him for understanding that that it's important to take care of other people. Hey, I love you. You too. I'm so proud of you. And I know wearing a mask when other kids aren't wearing masks is kind of stressful, but you don't want to tell me. Okay. Can I have a kiss? Love you. stories you just heard were brought to us by Michigan Radio's Rachel Ishikawa, our podcast producer, and also stateside producer Aaron Allen. And Aaron and Rachel had a little bit more to share about what they learned from these two families. Aaron, Rachel, thank you for sitting down with us. Hey, thank you for having us. Thanks so much. Hey, Rachel, the family that you talked to, uh, their son's name is Elliot, is in a district without mask mandates. And I know he's masking up to go to school. But what did what did his mom, Caitlin, have to say about what the rest of the classroom looks like? I mean, are there kids or teachers or administrators wearing masks? Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. Um, so I did ask Caitlin what it looked like. And, you know, it was only the second day of school, so there's still a lot of unknowns. But at this point in Elliot's second grade class, there's 
it seemed like a couple of kids were wearing masks, including Elliot. And um, surprisingly, or at least to Caitlin's surprise, uh, his teacher was wearing a mask. And that was actually a huge relief for her because she really didn't know uh, what to expect. So definitely the majority of, of people are not wearing masks, but there are some people who are. It totally makes sense that Caitlin would be concerned that Elliot might get bullied for this. And, it, you know, the, what she said about, you know, you ask your kid, how is it going? And they say, good. <laughs> like You always have to kind of have to look a little bit past the first thing they say. But it sounded like he, he is feeling fine. Do you know where her concerns were coming from for this? Yeah, something that didn't make it into this story is that Caitlin is actually really, really active in Brighton at school board meetings. So she's been attending meetings and speaking out about the need for a mask mandate. And because she's been this vocal person in her community, she's actually received a lot of backlash. Um, And this has looked different ways for her. So she explained, you know, this one thing that will happen to her when, when she goes out to Meyer. I have worn a mask to Meyer and have been told from people I don't know just passing in the aisle that if I'm so scared, I shouldn't be in the store. Like, I'm just looking at pasta. (laughs) Why are you talking to me? (laughs) She also talked about how it is really hard to hear parents saying that masking your child is abuse. Someone in one of those public meetings will say that putting a mask on my child is child abuse. And that hurts. It hurts so much because I myself have experienced trauma as a child, not physical abuse, but it's, you know, no, it's not. It's just not abuse. And I think it's worth mentioning that uh, Brighton is in Livingston County, which we've already seen rises in cases and cases happening in their schools. So Howell and Heartland opened up schools in August, and just two weeks after they opened, each school reported more than 30 cases, or each school district, rather. So Caitlin is now in the position where she's not even asking if, but just when are these outbreaks going to start happening in Brighton. And so it, it is a real concern for her. So I know that the conclusion in just a few probably days time is that kids will be quarantined, kids will be getting sick. And is Elliot going to be one of them? Yeah. I mean, the feelings uh, about this are just running well into the red (laughs) on the thermometer all over the place. Erin, you know, the family that you spoke with are Lisa and Judah. I mean, that story was noticeably less heavy, maybe even a little silly. But you did mention that our Lisa was concerned about Judah, too. What were some of the things that that came up for her when you guys spoke? Yeah, so Arlisa was a little ambivalent about returning to school in person. On the one hand, Judah was having a really hard time last year um, with virtual learning, and so she was excited to get him back into the classroom. On the other hand, you know, she felt like there's so many unknowns, whereas, you know, she felt like the district prepared her and teachers prepared her well um, for what was going to happen this year. She feel like that could only go so far. So um, this is her talking about that a little bit. As it relates to safety, I would probably say 55% there. And part of that is um, 
there were, we had a parent orientation. They laid out for parents what the protocol was going to be, what's expected. I say 55% because I really do believe that some of this is, um, we're building the ship as we sail in a way. So there's still a lot of stuff that even the school districts don't know. This stuff could change at the drop of a hat. I mean, if, if numbers go up or if something weird happens, then we're all going to go back on shutdown. And so everything that we thought was going to happen is not going to happen. And then, bam, we're back at home again. Uh, so the ambivalence that, you know, we're hearing from our Lisa, I've, I've heard that from other parents, too. I have a godson, actually, who he was not vaccinated, fully vaccinated yet on the first day of school. So his mom held him in virtual learning up until he got his second shot in two weeks after. And so on the one hand, you know, she's being very cautious. She's being very worried, you know, and just making sure that he's totally vaccinated. And he's in Detroit Public Schools where there's masking and she still wasn't comfortable. But on the other hand, there's this excitement, right, about going back to school. I mean, she also dyed his hair, you know, like this bright color. And he's got some new shoes and he's, you know, all ready for school, just like just like normal, just like how it was before COVID. And so I think that ambivalence um, and, and sort of paradox even um, is happening a lot with parents where, you know, it's hard to be have to stay at home with your child, you know, for those who did. But also mm-hmm. um, you're excited to get them back, but you're also worried. <laughs> Judah's also on the football team. And Arlisa talked about, you know, this is a contact sport. It's, it's you know, kind of a lot to be in person at school, but the extracurriculars add another layer, I'm sure. Yeah, for sure. So Judah has actually been playing football all summer. <laughs> um, and so this particular um, contact is not new um, this, this school year. But, you know, she did mention in the story that, you know, she thinks that that's the reason why he got vaccinated, because it is it is pretty high risk. Right. And, you know, the other piece of that is that, you know, there is an incident with another football team with running into COVID. And it really just made her concerned. One of the high school teams that they were scheduled to play this week. My understanding is that the entire football team, that team is now in quarantine because several of their players have contracted the virus. So, you know, of course, that was very scary to me. If those kids are in contact with other kids who go to different high school, you know, so it's just this thing that could just kind of like snowball. I do not know why we ever thought that there would be a day when all this would be done and all the decision making would be done and all the worrying would be done, because that's clearly not exactly the reality that we're living with right now. But both of you, we really appreciate your reporting on this. We've been talking with stateside producer Aaron Allen and Michigan Radio podcast producer Rachel Ishikawa. Aaron, Rachel, thank you. Thank you. Thanks. This weekend, one of Michigan's more dubious celebrities gets his due with the film release of The Eyes of Tammy Faye. This biopic of evangelist Jim and Tammy Faye Baker will hit theaters after a splashy premiere at the Toronto Film Festival. It's still possible to run into folks who knew Jim Baker, who was born in Muskegon, before the PTL club's rise to fame and before the sexual misconduct scandal that brought down his evangelical empire. 
But Andrew Garfield, who plays Baker in the film, recently disclosed in an interview with CBS Mornings that Baker wasn't easy to play, right down to his distinctive Michigan accent, seasoned with grace notes, a fundamentalist preacher. Off camera, did you guys maintain the Southern drawl and her Minnesota nice? Yeah, we tried to. Yeah, um, and for me, obviously, with Jim, it was it was a Michigan, it was a Michigander accent with a little bit oh. of like a strange kind of like flavor of um, Southern Baptist because he was brought up and he he was obsessed with Jerry Falwell. So when he preached, he would kind of slip in occasionally to the thing that he had learned while watching other other preachers preach. For a little context on that Midwest meets Southern accent, here is the real Jim Baker preaching in the 1980s. And if all the demons in hell and all the bureaucrats in the world could stop me from building, when I go to heaven, he'd let me work on mansions. You can't defeat me. You cannot defeat a child of God. Hallelujah. Greater is he that is in you, right, in me, than he that's in the world. The sun will shine again. If you want to go see The Eyes of Tammy Faye, it'll be on screen at Michigan Theaters starting this weekend. And that's Stateside for today. Our show is produced by Aaron Allen, Mike Blank, April Van Buren, and by our director, Mercedes Mejia. We get additional help from Elizabeth Harlow and Lucas Pollock. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Stateside's a production of Michigan Radio, a broadcast service of the University of Michigan. I'm April Bear. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time.